Well, good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Before we look at that text, I just want to read to you uh, one verse from the book of Proverbs. Uh, while we were gone on vacation, uh, something big happened in our culture, uh, in our nation, and uh, this is uh, my first Sunday back since that big thing happened. And I want to read to you Proverbs 24:11. It says, "Rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter." And we as Christians have a responsibility to rescue and to uh, fight for uh, every uh, image bearer of God. The Dobbs decision was made and Roe versus Wade was overturned, and that is something that we celebrate and rejoice and thank God for. That uh, wicked thing needed to go. This does not mean that We can uh, sit back in our uh, lazy boy chairs now because there is a lot of work to be done in our nation, in our world. Uh, Every state now has its own responsibility to evaluate this. And we are here in a particular community, in a particular state. And I would ask that uh, you would, first of all, pray for wisdom for our local leaders, uh, the leaders of our state of Ohio. And, of course, uh, in every community across the nation. Uh, But I'd I'd ask for you to pray for wisdom for them. And then I also would ask that you pray for wisdom for us as a church, uh, that the Lord would direct uh, individuals to us that we may be able to minister to, uh, to help, and that the Lord would have us play some small part, perhaps, maybe, uh, in rescuing Uh, these children that are literally being led away to uh, the slaughter. And so we rejoice in what God has done, look forward to what God will continue to do, and uh, if anyone uh, has thoughts or ideas on ways that we as a church can minister, please uh, see me and love to talk more uh, about that. So uh, excited about what God uh, is doing uh, here. Let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your kindness to us, and we thank you for how you are constantly at work in our world in ways that are oftentimes imperceivable. We thank you for uh, the overturning of uh, Roe versus Wade, and we thank you for what that means. We know that there is still work to be done and pray that you'd help us to engage that uh, as you've called us to do. We pray also for the text in front of us today, 1 Corinthians 13, that as we continue to look at this, that you might help us uh, to honor you, that you would convict our hearts, that you would draw us to your truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Since it has been a few weeks uh, since we have been in this uh, chapter, uh, I do want to kind of help us get our bearings uh, where we have been and where we are going. There are three things that I want to say today in terms of introducing this text, Uh, and all three of these things have to do with finding our location in the text. Um, 
when you look at a map, oftentimes it is helpful for you to kind of zoom in and to zoom out. You know, you might be going on vacation somewhere and you're trying to understand the lay of the land. And so you will zoom in all the way to the street level, but then you will zoom out to kind of see where this is in relation to other cities and so on uh, and so forth. And so what we have been doing throughout 1 Corinthians is we have been zooming in on certain portions, we have been zooming out on certain portions, and as we have looked at 1 Corinthians 13, we have spent most of our time zoomed in quite a bit. In fact, there have been some messages in 1 Corinthians 13 where we have not even gotten through an entire verse uh, in, in that chapter. Normally, I, I don't know, maybe on average or so, I typically will preach five or ten verses at a time. Uh, in Genesis, would preach a whole chapter at a time, many times. And we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, particularly 1 Corinthians 13, under a magnifying glass. And so what I want to do here, since it's been a few weeks, is to just zoom out for a moment to help us kind of uh, get our bearings as far as where we are, get the lay of the land again. And so here's the first of the three things that I uh, would like for you to know. The first thing is that the book of 1 Corinthians is a book on a theology of Christian sanctification. Every week that I preach this passage uh, that the projector is working, you will see a slide at the beginning that says, 1 Corinthians, a theology of Christian sanctification. Uh, In our introductory sermon on 1 Corinthians, we observe that there are 100 verbs of command in the book, And so we said that 1 Corinthians is a very practical book. It is about my sanctification. What ought I do now that I am a Christian? How ought my life to be lived? What is a Christian ethic of this or of that? The book of Romans, uh, you may recall I noted only has 64 verbs of command. And so if you wanted to put the two books side by side, Romans, of course, very doctrinal, uh, 64 verbs of command. 1 Corinthians, very practical, 100, a little bit more. 1 Corinthians, then, is a book that is teaching us how we ought to live our lives as Christians. What is our responsibility after we become Christians? How, then, do we live? Hence, the very practical nature of week by week, how we've been looking at the book. That's number one. Number two, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, so we got the whole book. Now we're going to narrow this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is addressing a very specific question about Christian sanctification. And that specific question is this, how do I exercise my spiritual gifts inside of the church? God has gifted, of course, every believer with a different kind of gift or set of gifts, and now we are a local church, Crossview Church, here in Orville, and as God has gifted each of us individually, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how am I supposed to use my gifts in this context? What am I supposed to do? And that's the question that we've been exploring for quite some time since the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12. Now keep in mind that 1 Corinthians 13 is in the middle of that section. Okay, When we get out of 13 and we get into 14, you're going to see a lot more, again, of spiritual gifts. How do we exercise them in context of the church? 
1 Corinthians 13, then, is not Paul getting distracted and saying, oh, wait a second, let me just throw some random thoughts about love down here in the middle of this section on spiritual gifts. The point of chapter 13 is this. Your motivation for using spiritual gifts is just as important as how you use those gifts. So what Paul is saying is, here's how you use spiritual gifts. You do this, 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 and oh, by the way, you need to be motivated out of love when you serve one another in the context of the local church. That's the placement of 1 Corinthians 13. And then the third thing that I want to remind us of as we look at this passage today is our definition of love. Uh, We have been looking and repeating this definition over and over and over again since we got into 1 Corinthians 13. And we said that love is a combination of uh, commitment and affection. And we saw how um, the world oftentimes tends to see it only in terms of affection and oftentimes in terms of very shallow affection. It all is all about my feeling, and I could fall into love, and I can fall out of love. And we said that love is a feeling. It is affection. It is desire or delight, but it's more than that. It's also commitment. It is, I am going to stick with my marriage even if I'm going through a very dark valley right now. And so some people want to take the pendulum and swing it that way and say love is not feeling, it's not emotion, there's none of that involved, it's only raw commitment. And we said, why not both? And we went to Jonathan Edwards, who defined love this way. He said, and this is separated by a few hundred years of English uh, changes in the English language, but he said love is the inclination and the will of the soul. And he is doing the exact same thing that we are saying here, is that it is both of these realities. This takes into consideration both aspects so that loving your brother does not merely mean that you endure your brother, that you put up with your brother, but it actually means that you are inclined toward your brother. Your good deeds towards your brother come from desire, from delight, from affection, and you have both of these things together. And so hopefully these three things will help us to regain our bearings as we are now continuing our study in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to go through verse 12. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. Paul writes, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's going to be two main sections that we're going to look at this passage in. The first is going to be verses 8 through 10, and we're going to call this the permanent and the temporary, that which is permanent, that which is temporary. And then we're going to look at two illustrations. Uh, Two illustrations is going to be in verses 11 through 12. So 8 to 10, permanent and temporary, 11 to 12, two illustrations. 
One of the things that we have to remember about the church at Corinth as we get our bearings again here today is that they were abusing their spiritual gifts. They, in particular, elevated one gift above all the other ones, and that was the gift of tongues. If you had the gift of tongues, you were spiritual. You, you were close to God, maybe God favored you more than everyone else, but you had something that mattered, something that was important. Today, we would do the same thing, except maybe in other ways. We would gauge someone's spirituality by how much sacrifice they're willing to do. If you are a missionary in a third world country, you are extra close to God. Uh, or if you are someone who has more theological knowledge than someone else, then you are extra close to God. And of course, I'm not saying that these are correct standards, uh, but this is maybe how we can relate to this passage, that we might judge other people by certain attributes, by certain gifted uh, g- uh, gifts that they may have, so on and so forth, and say, you are really spiritual because of this. Corinth said it in terms of tongues. And so verse 8, of course, would have certainly come as a shock to these Corinthian Christians because Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. Tongues, they're going to cease. Knowledge, it's going to pass away. And what Paul is doing here is, is pretty obvious. He's saying, look, guys, you are obsessed with something that does not have a permanent place in the kingdom of God. You, you are obsessed with something that is going to be, that is temporary. Why are you devoting so much time to this and treating this as if this was so essential? This certainly should serve as a warning to churches today that some would even consider tongues speaking to be a mark of salvation. If you don't speak in tongues, you are not a Christian. Even if speaking in tongues continued into today, and later on you'll see in this message, I'm going to suggest that It does not continue in today, but even if it did, it does not carry near the importance that many perceive it to have. This does not mean that things that are temporary are unimportant. Marriage is, according to Jesus, temporary. The house that you live in is temporary. These things are not unimportant. They are less important than other things, but they are not unimportant. What lasts forever in this text is love. The opening line of today's passage is this. Love never ends. It's not temporary. Love is permanent. John Calvin says there is good reason that we should eagerly desire an excellence that will never come to an end. There, and there is. We, we agree with that. There is a good reason to desire this excellence of love because it will go on and on and on and on for all of eternity. You will not take your marriage into heaven, but you will take love there. And so we ought to be cultivating that now. We ought to be investing in it now. We ought to be doing things that demonstrate love to our neighbors now because that will continue for all of eternity. You will not take your fishing poles, your soccer balls, your cell phones, your cars, your houses, your gardens, your bicycles, your stamp collection, your chess set, your great-grandmother's china set, or anything else into heaven with you. Love, on the other hand, has an enduring quality to it. The love that you show to your neighbor is meaningful. In fact, the love that you show your neighbor is meaningful 
if nobody ever sees that. Right? Because what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to show love if it's noticed. And what this passage is teaching us is that love is enduring and love is important and love is meaningful even if nobody else ever notices it. Love, which is, as we've said, the combination of commitment and affection you have for others will last forever. It will endure. There is thus eternal value in cultivating it now. And by the way, as a side note here, something that may help distinguish between doing this for someone else or doing it for yourself, love is by its very nature others-focused, and lust is self-focused. It says, I want to do this for my sake, and uh, love says, I want to do this for the sake of the other person. Uh, Many of uh, the marriages that happen in our world today are lust-based, and they ought to be love-based instead. Love will never end. And this was the, the great mistake that the Corinthian Christians made. They treated love with contempt. They were rude to one another. They were divisive with one another. They were arguing amongst themselves, and they treated the gifts as if those were the things that would last forever. That's what the rest of the verse says in verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. Now, read this verse carefully. Paul identifies how many temporary spiritual gifts in verse 8. You see in the text there, in verse 8, he identifies three. So, he identifies prophecies tongues and knowledge, and he compares those three temporary gifts with the enduring quality of love. And the question is, if love lasts forever and these other things end, when? When do these other three things end? And the answer comes in verse 10, and we're not quite there yet. All we need to know for the meantime, for this this moment right now, is that love endures and is permanent, and these three spiritual gifts are temporary. Now, let me explain the significance of this. And so to to, to do this, we're going to have to go back in time a little bit and ask ourselves, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? If we want to understand the significance of verse 8, we're going to have to go back one chapter to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for... For what? Does anyone see it there in the passage? You're given the manifest of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, what does that mean? It means that God has gifted you with a spiritual gift for the good of others. God has not given you a spiritual gift to lock it away and hide it from everyone else. If you are not exercising your spiritual giftedness in the context of the local church, then you are disobeying God. And we are to exercise our gifts for the good of others. 
Gifts, including prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, were given by God to be a benefit for others, not primarily to self. Okay. Follow the kind of logical progression that we're making here. The, the, The Corinthians elevated these gifts as important in themselves. And they stopped using those gifts to serve others, but instead used them as awards. And they were showing off their trophies to one another, saying, this is what I have, what do you have? Oh, you don't have that, you must be a lower Christian, kind of a thing. This is what's going on in this church. Here is the big deal with what these Corinthian Christians were doing. They were detaching the tool from the mission. They, they had a tool, and they detach it from the mission. Okay? Never detach the tool from the mission. Okay? We need to say this to ourselves probably about 100 times, and I'm going to explain what I mean by this. Okay? Okay? Take a tool. Take any tool. Take a hammer, okay? We all know what a hammer is for, okay? You have two pieces of wood and you want them to stick together and you take this little piece of metal called a nail and you stick the pieces of wood together using the hammer. Okay? It's a tool. It has a purpose. It has a job. Now imagine a group of people who got together and they loved hammers so much that they decided we're going to start a hammer club in our community, okay? And we're going to show off the different hammers that we have, and, and we're going to have, and, and they're decorated differently and that sort of thing, and you have contests with these things, and slowly this club, as it begins to, to change, it, people begin to take a liking to the most beautiful and ornate ones, and they start making hammers out of glass and inlaid with diamonds and all this kind of stuff and decorating them. This obsession with this tool has done what? It has moved the hammer out of its realm of usefulness. It's not useful anymore. You've detached the tool from the mission. The the hammer, we might say it this way, is a means to an end. And that end might be a birdhouse that you're building with your son. That end might be a building that you're creating, but you've lost sight of that tool and made the tool to be the end. The end was the birdhouse, and the tool and the hammer was the means to get to that end, and now you've severed that relationship so that the tool is the end in itself. You might recall... um, Uh, Tolkien's quote where he said this. He said, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Okay? This is actually a really good quote. The sword, what he is saying here is that It is not an end in itself. You don't love the sword for the sake of loving the sword. He's saying these things are not uh, ends in themselves. They are a means to accomplish an end. And the sword is for protection. It is protecting that which you love and care for. And so it's not that I love this sword 
as much as I love my family that I'm protecting with this, and therefore this tool will be a means to accomplish that end. If you ever reject that, by the way, you are in big trouble. People who love the sword, people who love violence for the sake of violence, are tyrants. You don't detach the tool from the mission that it's supposed to accomplish. You love the hammer for what it produces, you love the sword for what it defends, and you love spiritual gifts for how they minister grace to others. That, that's, that's the point here. The, the end goal in God giving the gifts was to show love for others because that endures forever. The gifts are only the temporary tools to accomplish that end. And when you love the gift for the sake of the gift, you detach it from the mission, which is loving others. And you start to not love others, and you start to become self-centered and focused and look at me and self-righteous and all those kinds of things. The Corinthians were like that person who started the hammer club, loving the hammer for the sake of the hammer, and thus ruining the hammer. This is what happens when you love gifts for the sake of gifts. You ruin the gifts. You see how the hammer is ruined? Because if you have a glass hammer, you can't do anything with it, okay? So you've ruined it. You could say that these Corinthian Christians were like the person who loves the sword for the sake of the sword and thus becomes a tyrant. You've ruined the sword. The Corinthians loved the gifts for the sake of the gifts, and thus the gifts became corrupt. They became self-serving, they became self-defeating, they became useless for what God had given them to accomplish. The Corinthians loved, in particular, the gift of tongues for the sake of the gift of tongues, and thus they destroyed the gift of tongues. They weren't doing what God had designed them to do. They detached it from its mission. Instead of using tongues as a means to an end, they used it as an end in itself. Okay, now, stop for a second. The applications here are thousands upon thousands. Okay? A builder who idolizes the hammer corrupts the hammer. A warrior who idolizes the sword corrupts the sword. A Corinthian who idolizes tongues corrupts tongues. A government who idolizes power corrupts power and exercises tyranny. A man who idolizes sex corrupts sex. A child who idolizes leisure corrupts leisure. A woman who idolizes beauty corrupts beauty. This is why these Corinthian Christians need to be reminded tongues don't last forever, but love does. And so for us today, we need to be reminded that the hammer, the sword, or power, or sex, or leisure, or beauty, dot, 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 etc., all has its place. And if we keep each of those things in their God-ordained places with God-ordained boundaries and God-ordained limits, then they can function as God-designed. And they will satisfy the things that are good. 
A marriage is satisfying when you don't look to it as, as if it were God. It is good to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner, okay? It is not good to idolize Thanksgiving dinner because it becomes corrupt, okay? Now take that and apply that in a thousand other ways. If we elevate any of these tools or any of these relationships or any of these things to a God-like status, then in that moment we have corrupted them and they don't function as God has designed them to function. And keeping things in their proper places... This is exactly what the Corinthian Christians were not doing. They were supposed to keep the gifts in line to serve a purpose. And they didn't do that. And Paul clarifies the importance of this in verses 9 through 10. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You guys are not keeping these things in their right proper place. You need to know they won't last forever. And that will help you to put them in their right place because love lasts forever, and so you are to use this to minister love to others. And so he says they're temporary. They're going to pass away. So what does this mean? What does verses 9 through 10 mean? Well, we have landed in one of the most hotly debated verses in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. What does Paul mean by the word perfect? You see that 9 through 10 there? For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when the perfect arrives... The partial will pass away. So uh, the question would be, what is the perfect and when is it coming? Some people believe that the perfect is a reference to the completed canon of Scripture. That is to say the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, that the perfect has come. Some people believe that the perfect is a reference to the second coming of Christ some believe it's a reference to the eternal state. Some believe it is our perfect glorified bodies. And some believe it is the culmination of this age. And, of course, some of these have some overlap in each other. Now, those of you who have been with us from the beginning uh, of 1 Corinthians 12 will know that uh, I am a cessationist, which is a fancy term for saying that the miraculous sign gifts have stopped, including tongues. And one of the popular arguments amongst cessationists is that the perfect is the completed canon of Scripture. And now that we have this, now that the perfect has come, the miraculous sign gifts have ceased. Now, I am a cessationist, but I don't believe that the Bible is what is being referred to here. And there's a few reasons for that. The reason is because he says that when the perfect comes, not only will tongues cease, but partial prophecy and partial knowledge will pass away. And in verse 12, if you look forward to that, 
what does that partial knowledge pass away into? It passes away into full knowledge. When the perfect comes, partial knowledge will pass away, and we will have full knowledge. So, if that's what is being talked about here, why is it that that has not happened yet? And so I don't think, though some of you may disagree with me, I don't know, I don't think that the perfect is the Bible. Of course, the Bible is perfect, but that's not what the perfect is here. I would suggest that it makes more sense to say that the perfect is the eternal state. Everything is set right at that point. We have our glorified bodies. We're no longer enslaved uh, to to sin or or, or having his presence here. And I would say that at the end of the age, partial prophecy and partial knowledge will pass away. Now that leaves us in a bit of a bind. Does that mean that tongues continue until the eternal state? And I would say no, and I want to explain why. Now, I need to ask and beg you for your forgiveness ahead of time here, okay? Um, There are some slightly technical reasons in the text why this is the case. And so I will be a little bit technical here, as little as I can be for just a moment. So hang, hang on, okay, for just, just a moment here. Because this is, this is part of a larger argument, and I'm trying to understand the whole thing here, okay? Um, I want you to look, uh, make sure you have your Bible open, okay? I shouldn't have to tell you that, you should already have it open, okay? Make sure your Bible's open, okay? And make sure you're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 8 through 12, And I want you to look down at the text, and I want you to notice the words uh, pass away. I want you to notice every time that he says this word, pass away. This word, this Greek word, which is translated in English as pass away, shows up four times in the Bible, or in this passage. And it is translated as pass away, pass away, pass away, and then... Further down, it is translated as gave up, when he says, I gave up childish ways. Okay, this is the same Greek word in every case. Um, The question is, well, well, let's say this. What does he say will pass away? He says prophecies will, and he says knowledge will. He does not say tongues will pass away. It's a different word. What's the word in English there? Cease. Okay? So he says, prophecy, pass away. Knowledge, pass away. Tongues, cease. Okay? Now notice one more thing. Tongues is not mentioned in verse 9. Okay? In verse 9 he says... So in verse 8, he he talks about prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Verse 9, he only talks about knowledge and prophecy, not tongues. Do you see that? Okay. So clearly, whatever is going on here, whatever, whatever we're going to conclude about this, knowledge and prophecy are being talked about differently than tongues. Can we at least say that? 
Tongues is, is referred to once in verse 8, but not in verse 9. Knowledge of prophecy is referred to both in 8 and 9. Knowledge of prophecy will pass away. Tongues will cease. Okay? So let's sum this up so far. When the perfect comes, and I'm saying this is the eternal state, the partial things, that is to say partial knowledge and partial prophecy, will pass away. Tongues is not connected to the coming of the perfect. It's not, because verse 9 is talking about the things that are connected to the coming of the perfect. When the perfect comes, it's the partial knowledge and the partial prophecy that is, okay? And then tongues is going to cease, but it's not connected to that event. Am I making any sense here? Okay. So, in case that's confusing, I'm going to quote John MacArthur here for what is probably a clear explanation. And he is going to get a little bit more technical into the uh, Greek. He's going to refer to the voice of the word cease, okay? It is in the middle voice. Um, It's not active or passive. It's middle, which in Greek, if you put a verb in the middle voice, it's a verb that's referring back to itself. So you could say, it will cease, it will cause itself to cease. Okay? You could have a verb that's active. Um, I will make you cease. That's active. You could have passive. You will be ceased. Something else will be doing the action on it. Or you could have the middle, it will cease itself. Self-reflecting back on itself. Okay? So here's what John MacArthur says. He says, cease is here used in the Greek middle voice, which indicates reflexive, self-causing action. The cause comes from within. It is built in. God gave the gift of tongues a built-in stopping place. That gift will stop by itself, Paul says. Like a battery, it had a limited energy supply and a limited lifespan. When its limits were reached, it actively, uh, or its activity automatically ended. Prophecy and knowledge will be stopped by something outside of themselves, the coming of the perfect, the cessation, or, um, uh, but the gift of tongues will stop by itself. The distinction in terms is unarguable. The cessation of tongues is not mentioned in relation to the coming of the perfect. They will have ceased at an earlier time. That is why they are not stopped by the same thing that stops the other two gifts. Okay? Prophecy, knowledge, this is stopped by the coming of the perfect. Talked about different verbs, addressed differently. Tongues will cease in and of itself. I would suggest to us, and I believe that the gift of tongues was in operation during the time Paul wrote the letter, but I believe that Paul indicated here that tongues would stop of its own accord before the coming of the perfect. Church history, of course, confirms this. Not that we need church history to interpret Scripture, but it does help to confirm things. Aside from one heretic in the second century, no church father at all believed the gift of tongues extended into their day. 
Again, John MacArthur observes, apparently no other tongues speaking was practiced in Christianity until the 17th and 18th centuries when it appeared in several Roman Catholic groups in Europe and among the Shakers in New England. Okay, So you have the early church fathers saying tongues is gone, and then you have all of these years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until it is revived in the church again. Um, and if you wanted to add something on this, I've never heard anyone speak in tongues. I've heard people speak in gibberish before, and I know you can go to school to learn how to speak gibberish, which is speaking in tongues. But tongues, remember, in the Bible, in the book of Acts, is somebody speaking an actual language that they had never studied before that communicated the gospel to someone who did not have access to the gospel in their language. The gift of tongues has ceased. The Bible says it here, and church history validates it. What does this mean? Well, it means, for one, that those who are speaking gibberish are either deceivers themselves or themselves being deceived by others. And so we need to be cautious in this regard. But more than this, it means, okay, we went through all of that technical stuff to confirm the point of the passage And the point of the passage is that we need to be making investments in things that last forever. He's saying, stop being obsessed with this gift for the sake of the gift. It is there to minister love to others. What greater thing could you do with the gift of tongues than to take someone who is an unbeliever who has never heard the gospel before and has no Bible in their language and speak to them in a way that they can understand, preach the gospel, they repent, believe on Christ, and they're saved. What greater act of love can you do as a human being? He said, you've detached the tool from the mission. We need to be making investments in things that last. In this text, it is love. Love never ends, but tongues will cease. So, Corinthian Christians, stop loving the gift itself and love the gift for how it can show love to others. And the same is true of us. Use your home, your hobbies, your car, your possessions to minister grace and love to your neighbors. Because the car will rot but your act of love will have eternal ramifications. Another way of saying this is that you need to prioritize your time. If love endures and your stamp collection does not, act accordingly. What do we need to do differently than we're doing now? And in case you did not understand this, Paul gives two illustrations to bolster his point. In verses 11 through 12, he says, When I was a child... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I did what? I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul says that when you become an adult, you put away childish things. And the point that he's making is that this is the same, the same thing is true of the gifts. Okay? What do children do? They put away childish things and become adults, okay? What about spiritual gifts? Tongues, temporary. We don't need that any longer because there's a, a growth process that happens here. Many cultures used to have what was called a rite of passage where a boy became a man. 
And we have, I would suggest to us, lost that in today's culture, and I think we have lost the concept of becoming a man in its entirety. Boys used to grow up into men, and what happens today in 2022 is that boys grow up into bigger boys, and they have bigger tantrums, and they have bigger attitude problems, and everything about their boyhood is exaggerated to an incredibly unhealthy level. But that does not negate the thrust of Paul's argument that spiritually thinking, uh, speaking, things that were necessary for a temporary season are not necessarily necessary for eternity. Then he compares some more. He says this world or this temporary season is like looking through a dim mirror. But then when, again, what comes, the perfect comes, we will see God face to face. Now we have partial knowledge, but then what does he say? We will know fully, even as we have been fully known by who? God. And so the relationship between that which is temporary and that which is eternal. And for this, all of us ought to long for heaven. To, to, to long for the perfect to come and for us to be seeing the Lord face to face. So where do we go from here? I want to conclude with um, just one application. And then I want to give you several examples of this one application. And there are uh, a million examples of this application. And so part of this application is apply this to a million different examples in your own particular life. So here's, um, here's the application. Use God's gifts to bless, edify, and love others. Never permit your gifts or your blessings to become an end in themselves, like idolizing them. Never detach your gifts from their purpose. Okay, I'll say that one more time. Use God's gifts to bless, edify, and love others. Never permit your gifts or your blessings to become an end in themselves, like idolizing them. Never detach your gifts from their purpose. Keep everything in place of where God has called it to be. Now, here are some examples of that application in action to maybe stir some thoughts in you. If God has blessed you with money, use it to bless and love others through giving. Don't let the money become an end in itself. If God has blessed you with a home, use it to bless and love others through hospitality. Don't love it for the sake of itself. If God has blessed you with knowledge, use it to bless and love others through teaching. Don't hold that to yourself. If God has blessed you with anything, use it to bless and love others. And when we do that, we keep the gifts where God has called them to be, and they function as they are supposed to function. And we 
can have some semblance of sanity too, by the way, because when you take a gift and you put it in God's place, it will not only corrupt the gift, but it will drive you insane because it never was designed to satisfy. Tongues, that gift is not designed to satisfy you. Your house is not designed to satisfy you. Your money is not designed to satisfy you. God is designed to satisfy you, okay? In order to be satisfied, I need Jesus Christ plus what? Nothing. Jesus Christ plus nothing. And if you are one who does not know Christ and the satisfaction that he gives, then may I implore you to repent and believe upon him today, and I would be happy to talk with you afterwards and point you to the hope of the gospel. Thank you, God, for today, the time we could be together, for your grace. We pray that you might help us to love, knowing that the gifts and the blessings you have given to us are not ends in themselves, but they are means to accomplish something else. Help us to treat them accordingly. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Christ's name, amen.